0: Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Priyanka Vidak. On behalf of Dialogues in Dermatology, I'm calling from UNC and speaking with Dr. Chris Syed, also from UNC, an Associate Professor here, and Dr. Asana Alavi, an Assistant Professor at the Women's College Hospital in the University of Toronto. And we're here to discuss today guidelines regarding hydradenitis suprativa. Thank you both for joining me this afternoon.
1: Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, thank you. So I know both of you played a large role in creating these guidelines. Can you tell me more about the thought process behind putting together the North American clinical guidelines, what prompted them, and kind of why now?
1: Sure. So I think for a long time, hydratinitis has not had a large community of physicians aiming to take good care of the disease and to try to sort of create concerted efforts around understanding the disease and educating other physicians about it. And so if you look 10 years ago, there were really only three or four people really seeing a lot of hydratinitis. I think in the past sort of five to seven years, the interest has grown and and the community around hydratinitis has grown. We've been able to grow groups like the Hydradinized Separativa Foundation and Canadian Separate TV Foundation and have enough of a group to, to sort of put together some real expert thoughts and consensus into a guideline. So I think part of it was the need for that community to build first. And as we sort of got to a point where it felt like, you know, we really need to make some bigger efforts to sort of make uh, some consensus around how to treat patients and how to educate others, it felt like the time was right to, to put out a first guideline.
0: Thank you. Yes, it sounds like, you know, hydrogenitis, as we all appreciate, has been in a very much overlooked disease process. And so it's very exciting to hear that all of your minds are being put together to help us treat these patients. So in the guidelines, you initially review recommendations regarding the clinical assessment portion of patients with HS. Can you review how you recommend providers to take a look at these patients, especially the Hurley stages?
1: Okay, sure. So the Hurley staging system is a relatively straightforward and quick system, which is what its strong suit is. The problem with it is it's not dynamic at all. You know, once somebody's Hurley staged a three and they have a lot of scar and sinus tracts that have formed, it's really hard to make that person Hurley stage one again. So it helps get a good idea about severity in the beginning and maybe guides some of, of what we think about in terms of what that patient's treatment course looks like. You know, a Hurley-1 patient, we can often focus on medical management and things like lasers, and that may be good enough, whereas as patients get more advanced, their surgical need tends to increase over time. So it can be somewhat predictive of that, I think, for a lot of patients. Hurley-1, very simply, is just basically lesions that come and go, so nodules and abscesses, minimal scarring behind Early stage two means you have one or very limited sinus tracts and scarring present, and then early stage three is when you have multiple sinuses, extensive scarring. You know, there's not a hard cutoff, but usually more than 30, 40 percent of a, a body region involved. You sort of go up in that early stage three category, and so that's relatively quick and easy to do. There are lots of other staging systems or sort of scoring systems that have been proposed over time, like Sartorius scoring or things like a high school response where you rely on AN count, uh, just counting up numbers of lesions present, it's just very subjective. If somebody has a diffuse involvement of a place like an underarm where there's multiple draining sinuses. It's really hard to say, are there three really big sinuses that, that have, you know, multiple directions, or is this one large sinus in the end? And if it's just a big plaque that's inflamed, how do you describe how many nodules are present within that large plaque? One large plaque that's several centimeters in diameter that's all inflamed is clearly much worse than two or three smaller nodules. So it gets very confusing to count lesions. But if you can have a basic, something like a Hurley score, in some way of generally describing yourself either uh, what you would consider a lesion count, that helps you track patients over time and how they're doing a little bit. But sometimes that can be very time intensive when patients have severe disease. I don't know, Afsana, if you have yeah, you know, preferred way. Uh, that you uh, think no, absolutely.
2: I agree. It, this is a very interesting topic, and uh, lots of efforts are now towards what is the best tool that, uh, with more accuracy, we can measure the outcome for treatment in patients uh, with HS. And I think, as uh, Dr. Sayed mentioned, as much as her staging is the most popular method, but it's not the most accurate one. And uh, people are using lesion count that is really difficult to keep track of this lesion or count them. Um, And we are trying to do both at the moment, by um, heavy staging, physician global assessment, and some degree of um, also the lesion count. But it's a topic that is improving by time. There are lots of work now focused on that.
0: Great. That's very helpful. And I like what you guys were saying about how, you know, a lot of our dermatologic diseases are subjective and how we can ap- appreciate them. But I think HS does have that unique challenge of trying to assess what's true active disease versus prior scarring. So I look forward to seeing the new staging recommendations when they come out. Um, so I know that HS is also, when we're also assessing it and trying to decide what adjunctive methods we can use for disease assessment. The question of wound culture sometimes comes up. Overall, it sounds like the feeling is that it's more of a sterile disease process, but is there ever a role for doing a wound culture, and when would that be?
2: Yeah, the simple answer to your question, to make it short, would be not at the moment. There are lots of limitations in value of doing a microbiological screening for patients with H.S., and and we all believe that H.S. is not an infectious disease that bacteria play a role, but what we capture with routine bacterial swab wouldn't be what we usually see, the heavy load of bacteria in tunnels, uh, mainly gram-negatives and anaerobes, that wouldn't be captured with a uh, routine swab, and we do not recommend um, using, uh, and, and, and it needs more advanced treatment. Um, and at the moment, even giving antibacterial treatments are not tailored based on what grow in the culture, and many of lesions of the chest. And when you uh, do a regular swab, we get mixed normal flora and skin commensal mainly. Another important topic in um, HS are biofilms. Biofilms are an important factor, and we believe that HS is a biopsy mediated disease, but they are in the tunnels and, and less likely that cultures be able to uh, capture that. That's, uh, then uh, a negative culture may support. Uh, that's just diagnosis, but may support because it's lots of colonization and contamination on the surface. face. And then at the moment, the recommendation is culture only is indicated if there are signs of infection, secondary infection, such as surrounding cellulitis or if has a fever and we are looking for a source of infection.
0: Okay. Now that's very helpful to know. And when you're assessing these patients, are there also additional comorbidities that you look out for?
2: Absolutely. HS is an inflammatory systemic disease and, and a very interesting model in terms of lots of comorbidities that are associated with this condition. One that is particularly, I, I want to get, Dr. Say, perspective on that too, but I as particularly am concerned would be mental health. I will try to see if I can see signs of major concern in mental health issues. If I capture it in review of system or my history, then uh, send patient for proper referral. The other important topic in terms of comorbidities in H.S. is metabolic syndrome, and component of that, like diabetes, that the studies have shown that uh, almost 1.5 to 3 times risk of type 2 diabetes in these patients, or high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, all components of metabolic syndrome is more common in a patient with HS. And basically, we do, through a review of system, if we have concerns, then we arrange the referral or testing based on that. Another disease is PCOS that has been shown. Very often, a few times more common in patients with H.S., then if we see signs of hyperandrogenism, we can make proper referral. And um, um, another topic would be inflammatory bowel disease. That is uh, lots of overlap between IBD and H.S. And uh, then mm-hmm. if we have patients that we have concern about inflammatory bowel disease, they also based on case to case needs uh, workup up regarding IBD or inflammatory arthropathy.
0: Perfect. So yes, of course, like examining the entire patient and emphasizing the predilection maybe for some neutrophilic processes in these patients, as well as the mental health portion. I know definitely very important not to overlook. What, Transitioning on to the management plans for these patients, what are some of the lifestyle recommendations or modifications that they can pursue? Are there any oral supplements you recommend? I know a lot of our other medications are related towards surgical or medical management, but are there some low-hanging fruit in terms of dietary and oral supplementations that they can reach for? Yeah,
2: probably this is a hot topic in social media and um, Internet about HS, what patients are really uh, looking for, that what complement in the diet makes the disease uh, better or worse. But really, what we and also what is in the guidelines for that and what we are talking about is based on anecdotal data and not robust uh, evidence based study um, because there are not lots of evidence based. Um, Literature on these topics, and also is a topic that uh, review of that is a lot of co founding factor, and it's a hard topic to study. But in general, uh, we know strongly to smoking 70 to 75% of patients with HSR is smoker, and 10 to 15% passive smokers. <sighs> And some studies have been uh, showed or some reports that patients who stop smoking, that it is improved. And there are lots of theory behind it that what makes smoking um, as a factor to trigger inflammation or follicular occlusion in these patients. The other thing is about dietary restriction, avoidance of uh, carbohydrates or dairy products, um, but then we look at the literature. I, I still discuss the same for my patients, that for when I discuss with patients, that there are limited evidence, but if you like to try it, low carbohydrate diet, and low dairy uh, has been discussed or proposed by experts and some um, studies that may help for your uh, disease but uh, the studies are limited. Most of them are very low sample size and um, all retrospective. Some of the supplements also like zinc or vitamin D, and there are in the guideline has been discussed, but overall for zinc, the recommendation was for early stage One and two patients as a modulator of innate immunity, but it's based on two studies. One is retrospective and uh, 90 milligram zinc gluconate daily and topical tricolazone 2% for three months have been uh, associated with some degree of improvement and one prospective study of just 22 patients. Then very limited evidence. I don't know if that's Sayed, say, do you suggest for diet or any supplement to your patient?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is probably like one of the questions that patients end up asking the most. You know, it's the kind of thing that sometimes comes up working on things that maybe help reduce or maintain a healthy weight because there is some evidence that increasing weight is linked to worse disease over time. There's no study that's shown that weight loss is clearly linked to improvement for every patient, but I think that is often the case for some at least. I think we have to be careful not to put more stigma or blame on patients that you know this is a disease because you are a smoker and because you are overweight that you got. Because there are lots of patients who are very thin who have never touched a cigarette that get that disease. So those are good things to carefully counsel on. You know, the dietary thing is really really tricky. Like Dr. Alavi was mentioning, you know, there are, are no really great quality studies, and, and patients will come, you know, read all the time online about things like the autoimmune protocol diets or paleo diets or keto diets or avoiding gluten and dairy and and nightshade vegetables. So there's a very long list of things that patients try and that some anecdotally will come in and say they feel like they find helpful, but they often need more than just that to get you know, the improvement they really need. So I don't discourage patients from doing those things. I'm careful not to sort of overpromise about them or to sort of make patients feel bad if they can't stick to some impossible diet that I know that I could never do either. But I think it's the kind of thing that if patients feel like it fits in their lifestyle, it is probably okay to do. But we really, in the guidelines, can't make strong recommendations when there's just a complete lack of evidence around it. So zinc was one of the few things with a couple of small studies that I occasionally bring up to patients that they're looking to not, I, if they want to avoid antibiotics or other treatments, and, and it feels like a reasonable thing to add in sometimes. But this is one of those areas that I think if patients could set the research agenda, they would want studies in particular about diet. And, um, It's just very difficult to fund those kind of studies and carry out those kind of studies.
0: Perfect. That's really helpful. So it sounds like zinc and then the stopping smoking has the most evidence behind it, but otherwise, or at least encouraging them to do that, but otherwise, it's kind of an area that we need more information on before we can comment further. Moving on to the surgical interventions, I've definitely seen you do a lot of them at UNC, Dr. Sayed. What surgical interventions do you recommend, and how does the simple incision and drainage compare to some of the more extensive, more procedures?
1: There are some studies that are sort of reports that say, you know, incision and drainage has a 100% recurrence rate and really isn't worth doing, but there are absolutely times where incision and drainage is useful, and that's in an acute setting. If a patient has a large abscess, it's very painful Doing something to open an abscess that takes the pressure off, you know, definitely it provides some pain relief in the short term. You know, if that's a chronically inflamed lesion, there's a fair chance that with enough time it may flare back up again so recurrences can happen. But in a a tough situation where a patient needs rapid relief, it can be a very, very useful thing to do. That is, again, more of a temporizing measure. I don't expect a chronic lesion to resolve with that when we do things like marsupialization, which is a little different than that and sort of more akin to something like a de-roofing or unroofing procedure. That is where you know, where those areas have tunneled and kind of chronically drained. And really the patient history has to drive this and what things look like. There are sinus tracts, tunnels, fistulas, however you want to describe those areas where there's sort of multiple drainage points or a recurrently draining lesion where the patient can, you know, tell you this is the spot that flares over and over again right here. It's not where they get one lump that goes away and a couple weeks later another one comes up somewhere else. It is the same spot over and over again. And if it's flared five times already in the last year, it is probably going to flare six. And so that's where that decision to do a surgical procedure is helpful at helping sort of end the life of at least that particular lesion. And it's nice to have things medically controlled in the background before you start to pursue that. If patients are developing new lesions all the time, recurrences are very likely to happen. But if things are relatively controlled or things are relatively stable in the background, and there are some recurrent stubborn areas that are continually or sort of recurrently causing a problem. That's where Moving on to de-roofing and unroofing procedures can be very helpful, and that can be done you know, unroofing at the idea there is that you you know use a probe or other instrument to feel you know where things stop and start under the surface of the skin once the area is numb, and you remove the skin that overlies where that tunnel is, and so it leaves a partial thickness wound behind, and you've sort of traced out um, the base of that tunnel as you go along. You know, an excision would just take full thickness of the skin and try to predict and go around where the the active area is, and then you can leave that open to the sub fat, or you can suture it afterwards, and some patients just prefer a stitched wound, so that can help make the decision to do things that way if that's a strong patient preference, or if they're very extensive lesions or where patients want maybe a chance of perhaps a more long-term definitive solution with a little bit less chance of recurrence, a wide excision can be done. I and mean, that's where you go sort of beyond all hair-bearing skin in the axilla, or you sort of regionally try to remove all skin. You know, that has much more morbidity than doing the smaller, focused procedures. So a lot of patients would rather start with the smaller procedures, and then can get very good results that way. But there are times where you know the wide procedures are necessary given the extent of disease, or just based on the patient preference. So I think a lot of it has to do with talking with the patient and figuring out what their goals are and what kind of surgery they feel like they can tolerate. Um, but it's really kind of those more extensive procedures are reserved more for chronically draining lesions as opposed to a one-time lesion. Yeah, you know, most things, if it's a brand new lesion, I think doing a big procedure is really not necessary when things can kind of heal just as well on their own.
0: Great. And then after you do these procedures, or at baseline, do you ever reach for like pain medications? Oftentimes, it sounds like they are experiencing a lot of pain, both at baseline and then post-surgically.
1: Sure. I mean, so post surgical, at least I'll comment on. I mean, you know, I definitely, I think, prescribe, you know, since I see so many HS patients all the time, more pain medicine than the large majority of my colleagues because HS is a painful disease. And if you ask patients about the thing that affects their quality of life most with HS, pain is always kind of the top ranked thing. And so to not address that, I think, is a problem. We obviously have to be mindful, just knowing with the opiate crisis right now that we have to be cautious of how we do things. But I think the majority of patients with HS you know, having a short-term use of a pain medicine after surgery or sort of when they have acute flare-ups because this isn't something where you can just put somebody on gabapentin every day because they can, I mean, sometimes you can if they have chronic pain, but for a lot of patients, they're great three weeks out of every month, and then, you know, they have a few days where they're really bad because something flared up, and so acute pain management is important. So I often do provide if patients want more than just ibuprofen or Tylenol, a small amount of tramadol, or something that contains a little bit of hydrocodone for those first couple of days if we do an extensive procedure, and most patients, I feel like, fine relief there, but we really have no evidence to back up, you know, what's the right amount. And so it's really relying more on the guidelines that are written to generally describe how to manage acute and chronic pain, which are usually written by the pain specialist. And we kind of extrapolate that out to use in something like hydradenitis because there really is very little evidence at all that describes what things are effective for pain management in HS, and that's opiate or non-opiate types of medicines. I think the day-to-day pain management is much trickier, and I think Dr. Lobby, you know, maybe can take that one
2: uh, yeah, I think uh, pain is a, a very important aspect of this disease. HS in general, compared to other dermatological conditions, what is unique about HS that is how it affects the quality of life. And then when it comes to impairment of the quality of life, probably the most uh, significant independent contributor is pain. I remember one of the patients with a church, a lady, was telling us, always dream that I go to bed with no pain. And many of patients, their indicator of a good treatment or bad treatment is that pain doesn't disturb their life. And as um, Dr. Saeed mentioned, it's a very important aspect, but at the same time, on the other side, in dermatology, it's not in our comfort zone to give pain medication. Then many of these patients are under-treated. They are young population. We have fear of opioid crisis. Then these patients are undertreated. We need to come up with it. A- pain management guidance for these patients because um, these are patients that really need pain medication. I practice in Canada and it's interesting here, cannabis is available. Uh, Many of these patients are using either topical cannabis or um, oral only because they are not prescribed enough. That's what they have access to. Uh, And I think this is an important thing.
0: Yeah, definitely, and it sounds like a lot of guidance that will be helpful for all of us as we try to delve into this area that I'm sure a lot of dermatologists hesitate a little bit in terms of how much to prescribe, when to prescribe, so I think more information hopefully will be helpful in the future. And then finally, do you find, I know, Dr. Sayed, you mentioned briefly the role of laser procedures when you are talking about the early, early stage HS patients. What laser procedures are you referring to, and how effective do you think they are?
1: Sure. So, you know, Indie yag laser um, was one of the few things that had a Category B recommendation in the guidelines because there was a randomized controlled trial that was split body that showed benefit in the treated side versus the placebo side. Um, it's a little hard to do shame laser treatments, but it still ends up being good quality evidence, and there's many, you know, case reports and series and, and some prospective studies that have evaluated Predominantly into YAG laser, but also some of IPL and diode laser, and I think in the end the reason laser probably works. So that the main reason is that HS is a chronic inflammatory disease that affects hair follicles, and I think it's, it makes intuitive sense that if there are fewer hair follicles around where that inflammation can kind of start, the less inflammation you ought to see develop over time for patients. So it's not a one-time thing, you know, and it's you know going to be very similar to how cosmetic laser hair removal procedures are performed. But I think for patients who end up doing three or four sessions, kind of like they did in those studies, you tend to see most of those patients improve. Now, if a patient has an armpit that's just full of scar and deep tunneled sinuses, you know, removing the hair follicles that are left there, I don't think make a huge difference most of the time in that area. But if that patient ends up getting surgery and has some hair bearing skin left, that you may have some benefit in terms of reducing recurrence afterwards. So. I think patients, you know, especially a young patient who's got disease that's kind of just starting up and kind of progressing, those are the patients where maybe they get the most benefit and you sort of really change the course of their disease if you get them in their teen years or early 20s as opposed to waiting for things to get out of control. But I think even in the patients who are more advanced, there can be a role in the right context unless they're just going to require wide excision everywhere and you're going to end up having to just cut away the skin you've treated with a laser eventually. See, I much prefer to get to a patient earlier and I think it has the most potential to be disease modifying, although. There really are not longitudinal studies that, that tell us that for sure. CO2 lasers are very different. That's basically a cutting tool. Um, there is some good evidence that CO2 laser-based excision can be very helpful in improving disease. Whether that's better than traditional surgery would be you know, a big question that is unanswered if there's really um, some benefit of cutting with a laser versus cutting with a sharp instrument. But that is something that we really you know, can't answer all that well of it right now.
0: Perfect. That's very helpful to know, though. And... Finally, any other points that you would like to reiterate or to summarize for our listeners? I think I've learned a lot, especially with kind of balancing the surgical aspects of it, the assessment of the patient in general, and then also the role of laser procedures in potentially modifying the disease course.
2: What I'd like to add is the importance of psychological aspect and psychological comorbidity, the screening for this patient, and also looking at what this patient going through and the stigma that they are dealing with. And we tried by raising awareness and understanding the aspects of this patient, the, what they are going to just um, alleviate some of the pain and suffering that uh, this patient have until a cure comes.
1: Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I totally agree with Dr. Lobby, You know, that's, one of the hardest aspects, I think, for us as dermatologists to always take the time to fully address. And it's hard sometimes for patients to go see another specialist sometimes. You know, I know I have trouble, like, I would have trouble you to go into a couple doctor's appointments every month or two. And so I think for young, busy patients that often that have HS, which is what that population often looks like, it can be a challenge. But especially if you can find a partner for that, somebody who is you know, sort of used to dealing with patients that have chronic inflammatory diseases or deal with chronic pains, those I think are some of the best collaborators. Because a lot of psychiatrists or sort of people who generally perform counseling may not have much idea about any of these things, but if you're able to, you know, find if there's somebody with an interest that's around where you are that that sort of helps patients with similar types of conditions and educate them a little bit on HS to start with, I think that can go a long way to finding somebody to help partner with for some of these patients who really struggle the most. And then the other thing that we've already mentioned is just the importance of of kind of combining you know medication and surgery in the right context. You know, I think for a lot of patients that see a surgeon. Uh, only over time, you know, they have 20 surgeries over the course of five years because every time something pops up, they get it cut out and there's never anything done in the background to actually slow down or control the background inflammation. And so those patients really struggle just with either surgery recovery all the time or or sort of constant flare-ups and they feel like they're going in circles. And at the same time, if all we do is focus on medicines, I think we often hit a wall with how good patients can get. So there's just those old stubborn areas that don't get better. So you know, really focusing on is this mostly chronic disease that, where surgery is a good fit? You know, is this... A mixture of sort of new lesions and chronic lesions where controlling things medically aggressively first before diving right into surgery and then finding the right time to do that with the patient can get patients the best they can be. So really trying to sort out you know, how to match surgery and medicine together in the right context either by themselves just isn't enough for a lot of patients.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you both so much. I think that a lot of our conversation is focused mostly on the surgical part, the laser part, and we covered the first portion of the North American clinical guidelines. And so in the future, I hope to discuss further with both of you on the medical management as well and what we can do as dermatologists on that aspect of the disease process. So thank you both on behalf of all the individuals and dialogues in dermatology and our listeners. I really appreciate all the advice and all the information you've shared with us today.
2: Yes, thank you for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for helping to highlight uh, H.S.